Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Hello, listeners. I have a special episode of Nighttime for you here tonight. The topic you're going to hear discussed was originally planned close to two years ago now. I had been speaking back and forth with the topic of our discussion, Stanton Friedman, and we had been planning a time for me to come to his home and interview him about his life. But tragically, before I was able to go and meet with him and do the interview and the episode, he died suddenly and unexpectedly at an airport in Toronto. Needless to say, the episode didn't happen, but I've always wanted to discuss Stanton's life here on the show. And I just wanted to wait till the right time and the right guest. Well, the time is now, and the right guest is his nephew, who's a Halifax-based author and filmmaker named Paul Kimball. Now, if anyone listening doesn't know who Stanton Friedman is, let me just sum it up like this. Stanton Friedman is easily among the most well-known and the most respected researchers or personalities associated with the UFO phenomenon. Now, Stanton is known as the flying saucer physicist, and the reason for that is he was interested in flying saucers rather than simple UFOs, and also his background was as a nuclear physicist. Needless to say, he's an incredibly interesting guy with an amazing life story, and I'm glad to be able to share it here on the show. So with no further ado, let's get to it. Tonight, in this episode... Our guest is Paul Kimball, and our topic is the life and death of Stanton T. Friedman, Canada's flying saucer physicist. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Paul Kimball, it's been a long time coming. I've been wanting to have you on this show for, we're probably going on two or three years now. It's good to, to see your face and uh, soon hear your voice. How's it going over there? It always worries me whenever anybody says Paul Kimball. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> Hello, hey Jordan, good to see you. Um, we've, we've. I think I was on your show once, uh, you, but it was kind of like here's a ten minute bit with you and a ten minute bit with you. Yeah, that, <laughs> we recorded live once in Shag Harbor, maybe two or three yeah. years ago. That was it when I was uh, there, I think with Aaron Gullius. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's where I met him, where I met you, and where I met a whole bunch of fishermen who saw a UFO. Uh, yeah, 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 pretty much. Um, um, it was a good time in Shag Harbor. Yeah, and, and you're up to elbows in, in work here. What are you doing? As I begin to set up there, you're just flipping through papers and moaning. What, what, is, what is happening over there? That <laughs> um, sounds bad when you put it like that. Uh <laughs> It's the glamorous side of the film and television industry. Oh, oh, look, awards and shooting and meeting actors and all that stuff. Yeah. And then there's the audits that come after for every single production. So <laughs> the camera can't pick it up. But right underneath here is a pile of banking and financial paperwork that that's that's the sexy part of the film industry, folks. That doesn't sound cool. So for people who don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself? I think you gave a bit away. You um, are tied up in receiving awards for your films. But why don't you give us a, what else is going on with you? 
I'm a historian and lawyer by training who uh, wandered into the music industry in the 90s. And and, uh, then when I discovered I wasn't going to be the next Paul McCartney, uh, wandered into the film industry where I've been for the last 20 plus years. Began my career in government, giving money out to filmmakers, decided if they can do it, I can do it. And uh, for the last 20 years, I've been having the government, I guess, give money to me, I suppose, um, as, a, as a filmmaker here in Halifax. Um, started with documentaries uh, as a producer, then eventually moved to du- directing, editing, writing, chief cook and bottle washer. Yeah, what, what connected you and I for, for this episode is your connection to Stanton T. Friedman. Uh, before we get into your connection, for people out there who don't know who Stan Friedman is, like we're we're gonna dive deeper into his story as we go. But why don't you give me kind of the the uh, I guess elevator pitch? Who is Stan Friedman in the world of UFOs? Stan Friedman, for those that don't know, I whether I agree with him or not, and Stan would I and I had many disagreements, very polite, friendly family disagreements over the years. Um, always very friendly, but. Um, Stan, I would say, is was the most important UFO researcher personality, uh, and the two in the UFO world invariably go hand in hand. You you can't be a UFO researcher and be known without being a personality. There are UFO researchers that nobody knows about, um, so they're different. But Stan Stan was. Uh, he wasn't just the successor to Heineck and um, Rupelt and Kehoe. He, he was something all of his own. And for 40, let me do the math here, 50 years, almost 50 years, I guess, um, he was the world's, I would say, the preeminent personality in Uf- UFO uh, research and, and entertainment, whatever you want to call it. So you'll see, folks, for instance, this is the long elevator pitch. Sorry, it's a tall building. <laughs> So you'll see, everybody loves Jacques Vallée, right? Mm-hmm. I like Jacques Vallée, too. He's an interesting cat. Nobody, and I mean nobody outside ufology, really knows who Jacques Vallée is. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody who knows anything about UFOs outside ufology knew who Stan Friedman was, because you'd see Stan on ABC News Nightline with Ted Koppel, and you'd see him on this documentary, that documentary, that news show, that network, that conference. He spoke, as Stan would have said, I think he said, in all 50 states and 10, nine provinces or something around the world. Um, if you went to university in the 70s or 80s or even the 90s, there's prob- in North America, there's probably a pretty good chance that either you saw Stan Friedman speak or you know somebody who did. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's how sort of widespread he was. So, and he's also the guy they call him the grandfather. He called himself the grandfather of Roswell. He rediscovered because Roswell had been in the media in 1947 briefly. He's the guy who rediscovered it in the 1970s. Again, for good or ill, Stan Friedman. Everybody knew who he was, and they knew why. You know, because of Roswell and everything that came after Roswell. So, if you've ever heard the term cosmic Watergate, Stan Friedman. If you're familiar with the concept of Majestic 12 or any government cover-up relating to UFOs, Stan Friedman, certainly the modern iteration of that. Um, just, you know, he's a, he was a giant figure, and I don't say that because he was my uncle. I say that because it's the truth, mm-hmm. and there's just there's no getting around it. So if you're interested in UFOs, you would have been interested in Stan Friedman. Yeah, That's the elevator pitch on the, on the, um, on the CN Tower. We, took, we took the stairs. We took the stairs. That's the stairway pitch on the stairway to heaven. Yeah, yeah. there you go. So you had, you had mentioned there, Stan is your uncle. 
what kind of relationship did you have did you have with stan like you're both into such similar stuff i i know you as a ufo paranormal guy you're and but you're also really smart you're a lawyer it seems like you got a lot of the same stuff going on with that's that stan did tell me about your relationship with him i wouldn't i wouldn't call him my mentor i don't think um even within ufology i eventually you know gravitated towards other people whose ways of thinking were more similar to my own but I saw Stan when I was a kid. He married into the family. We weren't uh, blood relatives. He married my aunt Marilyn, I think, 50 years ago. And so you'd go to family reunions. And all I, lo- I tell people, I love all my aunts and uncles and all my relatives. They were all great. I love family reunions. But, I mean, for a kid that grew up on Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica and all that stuff, here's a nuclear physicist who's talking about space aliens. Uh, yeah, I'll go talk to him because yeah. he was cool and then the the, as a kid and then the interesting thing that you i discovered uh as i moved into adulthood and and um directed my first documentary about stan it was his life story uh stan t freeman is real for space and bravo up here in canada and um got to know him even better i mean i knew him and i knew his story the way any family member knows another you know your uncle's story but spent a fair bit of time with him especially on the road too the film was shot on the road and really dove deep into his, his story and found out he was an incredibly funny guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he grew up in New Jersey as a kid. He a kid, I mean, like, you know, teenager, young college student. He was he was up in the Catskills um, uh, on co- at comedy clubs. I, he had a particular the Borscht Belt. That was it. The Jewish comics, mm-hmm. um, I, I presume, back in the 50s. And so, you know, I, I get Henny Youngman's the one that pops to mind. I, I hope he's one of them. I, I don't know them, but Stan did. So Stan had a good sense of humor. He had a love of history. He was, um, I won't say he was a religious guy, but he, he was a spiritual guy in the sense that he was inquisitive about that. And these were all things that, that I shared in common with him. He liked history. Um, we didn't have the same type of taste in music, but he loved baseball, too. He's an old Brooklyn Dodgers fan. So uh, people would ask over the years, they say, you, you get all these uh, chits, chit-chats with Stan Friedman. I mean, well, what's it like? You, might, you spend hours talking with him about the deep, dark secrets of UFOs. Eh, not really. Um, we'd politely agree to disagree about Majestic 12. Then we talk about baseball or, you know, how the families were or whatever. And then eventually we'd circle back around to UFOs yeah. and we'd start arguing politely about that. But, yeah, he, he was a good guy. Um, I enjoyed my time with him. Like every minute I ever would have spent with Stan uh, was fun. And, you know, you'd always learn something. And uh, I think, you know, we weren't uncle and nephew in in the end. I think we became pretty good friends. And even though we had our differences uh, publicly too, we would, you know, he roasted me and I roasted him publicly, but it was never personal, you know, and some folks didn't understand that, but that's okay. You hinted on this a little bit when you were talking there is, Later in life, he became a Canadian. He was living in Fredericton, New Brunswick, but he was uh-huh. brought up in the United States in New Jersey, I believe it was. And he ended up before UFOs took over. He had an exciting career and a successful career. That's its own story in itself. Tell me a bit about his history before you know flying saucers abducted him, for lack of a better term. If Stan was here, he would say, I worked on more canceled top secret government projects uh, in the 1960s than anybody else, because uh, he that was one of his favorite lines. He worked on a lot of blue sky stuff that sounds really sexy and esoteric, but 
had relatively small budgets compared to the giant military industrial complex where, you know, they just spent billions and trillions of dollars. His budgets were more like, in, you know, the projects he was working on had millions of dollars, but he was working on things like nuclear fusion rockets um, in his lectures. I think really till the end, you know, he, uh, he would still trot out pictures from the sixties of these fusion rockets that they were uh, working on in the sixties that, you know, the idea was that they could get you to Mars and beyond sort of thing. That's how we would travel because he was a nuclear physicist. And Stan uh, would tell you there were two types of nuclear physicists or really any physicist, I guess, theoretical. These would be the guys, the eggheads that would sit there and come up string theory. There's like eight guys on the planet that understand it. Who does, what does it really mean anyway? Stan would say, cool, that's awesome. You've got to have those guys. I'm an engineer. And he wasn't an engineer. He was a nuclear physicist, but he said, we're the guys who make things go. So we take the theory and we put it into practice and it's kind of like being an engineer. And so he would, he worked on, as I, I think I recall this, like shielding for nuclear rockets, propulsion systems for nuclear rockets. Eventually after he moved to Canada, I believe he worked on the Point LePro, or at least he was involved somehow in the Point LePro nuclear power plant. There used to be critics that would give him grief, right? After he became pretty much a full-time UFO researcher, lecturer. He was on, that was his thing. They'd say, well, he keeps putting nuclear physicist on his book, but Stan hasn't been a nuclear physicist since 1970 or whatever. The truth is he still kept his toe in it. Uh, I think he did consulting for um, the New Brunswick government, I think, on CETA radiation. Hmm. So, you know, so it wasn't his full-time gig after he got into UFOs full-time, but he he kept up with it. And um, But it's certainly what he did in the 50s and 60s. Uh, that's what his education was. He had a master's degree in science, I think, from the University of Chicago. He was a classmate of Carl Sagan. He never would tire of telling you that, mm-hmm. and um, which is fair. I'm pretty sure Carl Sagan never tired of telling people he was a classmate of Stan Friedman. Um, and they were friendly. Uh, so, you know, but he, he had a master's degree. He never he said, could have done a Ph.D. Ph.D.s were for eggheads. I wanted to go work. You know, I had a family, he would be very clear. He said, I had a family to raise, uh, you know, mouths to feed, mortgages to pay. And I had a master's degree in nuclear physics and I wanted to work. I wanted to be where the action is. So off he went. And those are the kinds of things he worked on. He'd tell you some weird stories too. Like, you know, they put him on an airplane with a briefcase and they'd handcuff it to his to his wrist. It's like spy novel kind of stuff and say, look, what whatever's in that briefcase is worth more than you are, literally. So if you die, we don't care but just make sure you cover the briefcase when the plane hits the ground kind of thing. So yeah, he was in, he, you know, he had a, he had a top secret clearance uh, at one point. So he knew how secrecy worked um, because he had been underneath secrecy. Mm -hmm. Like that kind of work. When I think of someone who's a a physicist working on these top secret projects, that must've been a, a pretty lucrative kind of career it seems like he would have taken a lot of risk to leave that behind in pursuit of understanding flying saucers or, or perhaps the money he would have made doing that is what enabled to him to you know pursue his passion later in life i don't know how lucrative the nuclear physics racket was in the 1960s mm-hmm. um i'm sure stan made a good living but you certainly wouldn't get rich you were a scientist working not you know, it's not like, hey, you're going to work at Los Alamos for 50 years or something like that. It was like, hey, you're going to work on this project for six months, this project for 12 months, almost like a freelancer, I guess. And um, sure, you would have made some money and you would have done OK. But he he made no bones about it. I think he would phrase it again. I'll channel his spirit. I, mean, I heard him say these things so many times. 
um, you know, when the bottom dropped out of the nuclear physics market or whatever, um, because pe- the government just stopped funding stuff, uh, which is largely true. If you look at the money they were putting into developing the space program in the 1970s, it largely didn't dry up, but it they their money went more towards shuttles and satellites around Earth than, you know, funding rockets and stuff that might want to go to Pluto. So, um, so Stan, you know, took a look around, and I think he by that time he had been giving lectures, and I sort of, there's like Stan was good. Nobody would, even the people who hate Stan, and I don't know, I can't imagine why you'd hate Stan, but some people do. Mm-hmm. Even the people who didn't like him or didn't think he was right, nobody could ever take away from Stan that he was a showman and he was an entertainer. Mm-hmm. And there was, and he would impart information as he entertained and gave you a show. Totally cool. But there's two ways of giving people information. There's this way. And on this day, something happened and it fell from the sky and it was very interesting. Cool. Yeah. Who cares? And then there was Stan's way, which was there's a cosmic water gate. And let me tell you, look at these slides, blacked out government documents. And it came from the sky and Zeta reticulans and blah, 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 blah. And he, he peppered it with jokes and he had accused SETI of being a silly effort to investigate. And he was the flying saucer physicist. That was it. So he, he knew his role by the time he settled into that role. Yeah, and he was good at yeah. it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to play a little clip here. If you have YouTube up, Paul, you can, you can watch along with this. But if not, it's a clip where Stanton is describing how he went from a nuclear physicist to a UFO researcher. He talks about kind of the, the genesis to that. I received my master's degree in physics from the University of Chicago in 1956. Two years later, in 1958, I was working as a nuclear physicist for the General Electric Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department near Cincinnati. was ordering books from a mail order place in New York and needed one more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping. And there was one, the report on unidentified flying objects by United States Air Force Captain Edward Ruppel. And then I stumbled across Project Blue Book, Special Report Number 14, in about 1960 at the University of California Berkeley Library. And I was astonished because it hadn't been mentioned in any of the 15 books that I had read. And it not only provided me with tons of data, and I'm a data hound, I'll admit it, information on 3,200 sightings, 240 charts, tables, graphs, maps, data heaven. But it also had the press release that the Air Force issued when the document was sort of released. It wasn't distributed, but they put out a huge press release all over the country. And that shocked me because it proved, once you looked at the data as I had been, that the Air Force was lying about the results of their study. So what we just heard in that clip is Stan talk about that that story. I'm sure you've heard him tell this a million times, but he was buying some books and to get free shipping, I think it was, he was he had to buy a couple more things and a UFO book caught his attention. And that's what really started this whole, uh, his 50-year odyssey into the the unknown. Um, yeah, it was by Edward Ruppelt. Um, one of Edward Ruppelt, uh, I think the original flying saucer book that Edward Ruppelt, who had been the sort of head of Project Blue Book. Uh, Blue book. Um, so, yeah, Stan said, sure, why not? 
And you had mentioned this, uh, and I've heard Stan talk about this a thousand times myself, just from the different videos and appearances that I've watched that, that he was in. He makes a clear distinction in flying saucers and UFOs. That's something he brings up a, a lot. Tell me how you how he described it to you or how you understand the distinction between the two and why that was so important to Stan. Channeling uh, Stan again. Uh, what is it? Not all UFOs are flying saucers, but all flying saucers are UFOs. That's what That was his line. Mm-hmm. And so he said, look, there's lots of UFO cases. Um, the vast majority of them are explainable. Uh, he never really put a percentage on it, but I think he probably thought like 97% of them can explain them. It's the 3% or the 5% or whatever the minority was that he was interested in. And so he would say, look, not all UFOs are flying saucers, but flying saucers, space, and he was very clear, alien spacecraft from another world are all UFOs. And so it's why he preferred, I think the term, I think he liked the term flying saucer for a lot of reasons, partly because he grew up with it. That's what people called it in the 40s and 50s. Um, Also partly because I think he actually thought it was more accurate. He believed that they were spacecraft, you know, from a different solar system. Um, If, you know, UFOs, you could be anything. Stan was like, nope, they're spacecraft. Uh, And I also think he thought, it, you know, it, it set them apart too. He liked the way he was an entertainer. So flying saucer physicist rolled off the tongue and everybody was a UFO researcher. Stan, I'm a flying saucer guy. Like you guys can talk about your UFOs all you want. I'm about flying saucers. And that's, that's why would we change the name? And you hear that the, the irony is of course, UFO people would say to him, well, because UFO is more accurate, right? But Stan, he had a lot of reasons for calling them flying saucers. Um, I think the one that I like the best, though, is he probably thought it, it set him apart. It was good entertainment. And uh, I don't say that in a pejorative way. A lot of his critics did. I I think the key to Stan's longevity and his success, and whether you agree with his message or not, his ability to get it out to people was his ability to entertain and engage. But they could also understand it. Um, you know, Sagan was good at that in his own way. Michio Kaku is good at that of not dumbing science down, but making it accessible to people. And so Stan was a popularizer too. He would, uh, he could talk the lingo. He could go deep into the weeds and, but he, he didn't, he, he wanted to make sure that everybody could understand the basic through line of the story that he was telling. And he understood that they couldn't do that if they didn't understand the story he was telling, Mm -hmm. which involved trying to make sure they understood some element of the science or at least how it could be possible, Mm -hmm. theoretically. Yeah, and now he, although a lot of his career was public speaking, doing, you know, the conferences and conventions and TV and film, he -hmm. really made a name for himself when he did the civilian investigation into Roswell. So we talked about this a bit at the beginning is the way I understand it is when Roswell happened, it was, it had a little blip on the radar of attention. So there was a couple news articles that came and went and it was largely forgotten about the way I understand it is, I don't know how long, 10 or 15 years later, it caught Stanton's attention. He reopened the investigation and now here we are, you know, 30, 40 years after that, and the name Roswell is synonymous with aliens, UFOs, science fiction, X-Files, and Stan gets the credit for that. Like, t- tell me about w- like what he did to make Roswell what it's known as today. Well, it was actually almost 30 years later. He, I think in my film, it's been a while since I've watched it, 
Um, but if not in the film, he certainly would tell this story all the time. Um, because some people hadn't heard it. He was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I think, and he was given a lecture, probably a college lecture. And I think he was doing a radio show to promote it because he was an entertainer. And I think the host on the radio show, if I have the story right, uh, asked him, hey, look, you're into you got all these the crazy space alien stuff. You know, I got a buddy. He's a ham radio operator in somewhere. Uh, and he's got this story or he's heard this story. And so Stan said, well, look, what's his phone number? I'll call him up. <laughs> and it turns out, as I recall, and he said, yeah, I got a buddy. He was there at Roswell. You need to talk to him because that's there's a story there. And so Stan said, sure. And uh, he was working with a guy named Bill Moore at the time. And the two of them, you know, talked to Jesse Marcel. And then the rest is history because then they talked to like literally hundreds of other people. They're still they're still finding, you know, witnesses to the Roswell incident now, even though if you were born in 1947, you'd be 73. Um, it, it, Stans would always say, we're racing the Undertaker. He was racing the Undertaker in these, not the WWE Undertaker either. And uh, I've had people ask me over the years, did Stan really believe everything about Roswell that he said he did? And I went, yeah, well, about 98% of it. The other 2%, he probably wasn't sure. But no, he was. he really believed that what he said had happened, happened at Roswell. And that took him into Majestic 12 and a whole bunch of other places. For good and ill, I like the stand that I saw speak at colleges in the 70s before Roswell really took hold, uh, where he would talk about the Betty and Barney Hill case. And no matter what you think of the Betty and Barney Hill case, uh, I think it's more interesting than Roswell. Um, he would talk about guys like Hynek and Kehoe and Project Blue Book. And he'd talk about that stuff into the 90s and the 2000s too. But it was always to get him to Roswell and Majestic 12 and the Cosmic Watergate. And that's where his journey led him. And that's where he and I went like this, not personally, but just our views. Uh, I, I couldn't travel down those roads with him because I, I don't think there's anything to Roswell. And I don't, I, I, Majestic 12 to me, I'm absolutely convinced was a hoax, a fraud. But he saw it differently, and uh, that became problematic for him. And mm -hmm. so Stan's the grandfather of Roswell, and um, and he's the grandfather uh, of all the stuff that came after, some of the responsibility for them. Stan, good guy, good researcher. That's how I remember him. But some of the doors he opened, you can't control the people that come in after you. Mm -hmm. And so the weird thing is, <laughs> Stan... Some people might have seen him, you know, like this guy's on the fringe, right, of science, uh, talking about UFOs. By the time 1990s and the 2000s roll around, Stan was, people within ufology were going, ah, he's a nice guy. It's kind of dull, though. You know, I, I think he knew that, too. We, he and I would talk about that. I think he'd never admit it, but I think he understood sometimes. Maybe these people went further than, you know, I ever would have expected they would go mm -hmm. so in stan's style of research specifically with what he did in, in roswell like it may have opened doors for you know negative and positive aspects of all this but what i what i find um a, a little story that that came out of that that i found really nice and i believe this was also in your film stanton t friedman is real uh you you spoke with don ledger who along with chris styles is are responsible for doing the same kind of thing with shag harbor than that he did with roswell so i'm going to play a little clip here and this is don ledger the one of the main researchers for shag harbor talking about his interactions with stanton and how stanton helped guide them 
So I try to encourage those people who seem to have a justifiable goal, an appropriate one that fits in with my background and so forth. Uh, a good example was Chris Stiles when he first called me about Shag Harbor. Chris had just been watching uh, uh, the uh, Unsolved Mysteries uh, segment on uh, the Roswell incident. And Stanton, of course, being uh, the expert on it at the time, was. Uh, uh, was on the program and uh, Chris thought, well, I'll try and uh, he looked up his phone number, was surprised to learn that he lived in Fredericton, New Brunswick and um, transplanted American. And uh, he called there, he got forwarded through uh, to a motel in uh, Dallas, Texas, because that's where Stanton was doing a, a lecture at the time, I guess. And uh, talked to Stanton and Stanton sort of gave him some leads about where he should start looking. And uh, I guess we owe Stan the, uh, the opening part of our investigation of how to get going on this thing, it, you know, with uh, Chris and so on. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of Don Ledger. I've had him on the show a few times. Uh, I was pumped to see an older, or a, a much younger Don Ledger on your film talking about, uh, about Stanton. And it, I've always seen them in Shag Harbor, in the the history behind how that was uncovered, you know, it, it's just straight out of uh, right out of uh, Stanton's playbook. So it's it's cool to see them put that in words in in that film. Um, yeah, Don and Chris are good guys. I've gotten to know pretty well. Yeah, um, Don's a lot of fun at UFO conferences. That's all I'll say. Um, and or he was. <laughs> I don't think he does them anymore. Um, and uh, yeah, the story of Shag Harbor. I, it really resonated with Stan. Crash flying, well, flying saucers, they crash, you know, somehow. Uh, and Don and Chris are good researchers and sensible people. So I think that resonated with Stan, too. It wasn't like, you know, uh, kooky people calling him. It's like, these are serious guys and they have a serious trail. So Stan was was very encouraging and, and helpful to them. Mm -hmm. And he's, he was encouraging and helpful to, to other people, too, who were serious and had some trail already that they wanted to follow it's like well okay how do how do we do that and so you know filmmakers lawyers whatever you want to anybody if you've got experience and some younger people or newer people come to you um and look ask for your help uh why wouldn't you give it to them because there were people that would have helped you on your way up and so stan learned from people uh and so he passed that knowledge and worked with people and he would pass that along to others mm -hmm. a, a, a lot of people who are watching and listening to this they may have a vague idea of the concept of like UFO conventions and UFO, you know, festivals, these sorts of things that Stanton made a career of traveling around mm -hmm. the world, um, appearing at. Tell me, like, just describe kind of that scene for people who aren't too familiar, who've never been to the Shag Harbor Festival or anything similar. <laughs> the Shag Harbor Festival um, in a hockey rink in Canada. <laughs> with catering by tim hortons so every festival is a little different uh some were bigger Fe uh, conferences were a big thing in the 80s 70s a bit but really in the 80s and into the 90s big 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 and even the, the 2000s up until 9 11 changed things a lot for travel and stuff but they would still continue on these days even before covid uh conferences were not 
as much a big thing because we can do this, right? Mm. So you can you can talk to people directly through the internet. Um, Stan would he had a phone number. People would call him at his home. He had two phones. He had Stan's phone, you know, which shared with the family, and then he had you know the bat phone, which was you know somebody calling the special number. He had two rings, one or the other. And it's like my aunt would go, "That's your, that's the UFO ring. You answer that." I she wouldn't answer those ones. So, you know, conferences were cool. They were fun. Uh, I have to admit, I've been a big critic of a lot of people within ufology, uh, but I enjoyed going to conferences and meeting most of them. There were some I, I just couldn't cotton to, but uh, most of them, it was always a good time and you could always be polite most of the time. Uh, so there are exceptions to every rule, but for the most part, it was good fun. And Stan would go, he would, you can see it in the film, you can see him, he would lug a suitcase full of, um, of books uh, down the hallway. Now you could just, he'd still have books, but now you could just say, go to, you know, Amazon. You can buy them off Amazon. Here's the password or here's the website kind of thing would make life a lot easier. But even had this huge suitcase, even in his sixties, seventies, he was dragging this thing through airports and down hallways. And uh, you think, well, this is a glamorous life, right? Anybody who's ever been a musician, unless you're you two or you have roadies and stuff, it's not a glamorous life. You got to haul your own gear, all that stuff. So as a former musician, it resonated with me to see Stan trundling along through airports. Um, I never went through airports, but just anywhere with gear and having to lug your own stuff. So one thing, though, that sticks out for me is when we were in L.A., Anaheim, really, in 2001, filming Stan T. Freedom Israel, I remember these two very, very, I mean, very attractive young women. There's no, they're in the film. You'll know when you see them. And so we were all standing around. We're a, we're a small film crew of, you know, guys. And we thought, well, they're here for the conference. Let's see if they were willing to be interviewed. So we walked up and we said, look, would you be willing to be interviewed? We're doing this film about Stan Friedman. They went, oh, my God, yes. And they worshipped Stan Friedman. Like, they thought he was a rock star. And But they were just, you know, Stan was this star to them. Uh, almost, a, I won't say godlike figure, that's not true. But they a legend a legend, and eventually introduced them to Stan because um, he was at his table selling books. And I said, I can't, honestly, it was 20 years ago. Can't remember their names, but, you know, Jane and Sue. And I said, hey, Stan, we were interviewing. These two are big you know, fans, very interested. They'd love to talk to you. And Stan was like, oh, well, I'd love to talk to them too. And, you know, their faces lit up kind of thing. Wow. And Stan talked to them for about 15 or 20 minutes. I think one of them had a story, like had seen something. So he, they, he would always listen to people's story stories no matter how crazy they might seem to anybody else even if stan thought they were crazy and he did sometimes like i'd come up i remember one lady at that same conference she told him a story and Stan was like mm -hmm, mm -hmm, well you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you should look at this look at this and maybe mm -hmm, similar to that and she went away satisfied i think she even bought a book wow. and and then you know <laughs> and then she walked away and he and i had a moment alone and we were just kind of sitting there and i went she was a little out there stan and he went oh yeah <laughs> you know like so that I, she should probably see a psychiatrist. And he knew that there were those people that, uh, you know, like I slept with Luke Skywalker kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, Stan didn't, he would give everybody the benefit of his time and he would treat them with respect like human beings. But he didn't believe everybody and he didn't accept everybody. You know, like he was not one of those people who said no witness uh, would lie. Stan knew people lied. Uh, every witness, uh, you know, I know what I saw, the title to the James Fox film or whatever. 
No, you don't know what you saw. You saw some. It's the dumbest title in the history of dumb titles in <laughs> film. I know what I saw. No, you don't know what you saw. That's the whole point. It's a UFO dummy. But <laughs> but Stan would listen to those stories and then he would put them in the context of everybody else's story. So one of my favorite things, uh, to, and he would try and make it so that people wouldn't be afraid to tell their stories. So my favorite thing in any Stan Friedman lecture was, uh, he would somewhere during the lecture, he'd say, look, show of hands, how many people have seen what they think is a UFO? Now, remember, this is a guy who was talking about UFOs as spacecraft, alien spacecraft. So, and a few hands would go up maybe, not always, but sometimes a few would gingerly go up too. And then he would talk about the laughter curtain. And he would say, look, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. I imagine there's more of you in this audience. And by the t- I remember one lecture he gave at Acadia University. Um, I think three or f- like 400 kids or something, 300 students, whatever. And maybe four or five hands went up. And by the end, it was more like 30 or 40. Because what he then would do is say, look, you're not alone. Uh, Jimmy Carter saw a UFO. It doesn't matter that it was the planet Venus. It's that Carter would talk about it. John Lennon said he saw a UFO. Lots of people have seen UFOs. Don't be embarrassed by it. Doesn't mean what you saw was a spacecraft. Truth is, it probably wasn't. But maybe it was. But it's just you saw something. That's all it is. You know, it's just like seeing a traffic accident. It's the laughter curtain, he would call it. And he would say, that's what we have to do. We have to break down the laughter curtain so that people are not afraid to tell their stories because people would laugh at them. So that was his primary, I really do mean this, that was his primary mission, was to make it acceptable for polite society to talk about UFOs. Hmm. And the way to do that was to popularize it, to inject a little bit of humor in it, to not take your, you know, not take yourself deadly seriously, seriously, but not deadly serious, but make it so that people weren't afraid to talk to their friends and neighbors about it. Stan was key. Uh, I would say the key guy to making it acceptable to talk about it in polite company. Um, And that's actually a pretty good legacy, even if you have to deal with some of the kooks and crazies that came after him. Uh, they've, They've ruined that. In many respects, I think you would look at that and go, they're making it harder. They're taking it back to the days when people all thought we were all nuts. Um, and he spent an entire lifetime trying to inject science and history and some degree of rationality into it, even if maybe his own views, some of us might have said, well, we don't agree with you. But we could respect the process by which he would come to it. So that's to me, that's his greatest legacy is to make to popularize UFOs and to make it acceptable by treating people as human beings and listening to their stories, too, I might add. Yeah, I've always yeah. been impressed by the way he he would use humor when appropriate, especially in his his live um, speaking engagements. I'm actually I'm going to play for for people who haven't seen him speak. I'm just going to play a short clip here just to get a taste of kind of the style he has because there is a lot of showmanship and humor, but at the same time he's like he's so on the ball, he's so sharp. Let's get rid of another myth. There are too darn many apologist ufologists. Because many people on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, have accepted the notion that most people don't believe in flying saucers. I have no idea why. I've had 11 hecklers in over 700 lectures, and two of them were drunk. You're gonna get that many if you talk about religion, sports, politics. There's no big risk here in sticking your neck out. But people's actions are determined by their perception of what 
other people are going to say in response to what they say. It's okay. Here's several Gallup polls. They show not only that believers outnumber non-believers, the real over the imaginary, but that the greater the education, the more likely to believe the So that comes as a real shock. Yeah, so, so we hear in that clip there, he's, what he's saying is logical, it makes a lot of sense, and like as you described there, he's really rallying the troops, but at the same time, he's doing it in this funny, approachable, self-deprecating kind of way, so he's, he's a master of it, but on, on the same token, I like watching clips of, um, he, he can do it the other way as well, I have a clip that I'll play right after this where he had somebody interviewing him. He was on some TV show I've never heard of, um, on some TV station that was canceled. Uh, but but the host was was really kind of leaning on the, um, you know, UFOs are crazy kind of thing. And Stanton went after him in the complete opposite direction, like a scientist spouting facts and figures. And he knew exactly what to do to, you know, to show this guy, like, this is not anything funny at all i'm gonna play that this is a short clip i think actually it wasn't a tv show this was a clip from um there was a tv a movie called mars attacks maybe 15 or 20 years ago and it was a tv mm -hmm. special to promote the film mars attacks that was coming out oh, wow. and they had stanton on to talk about aliens you know the film right mars attacks you've heard of that i do tim burton yeah, yeah exactly it's a funny film um so here it is a master's degree in physics. He was a classmate of Carl Sagan, and he's written numerous articles as well as two books, including Crash at Corona about the Roswell incident. Lectures all over the country, and we're happy to have him here. Ufologist Stanton T. Friedman. Welcome, Stan. I'm glad to be here. Ufologist, like geologist and biologist. Ufologist. Sorry, it's not ufologist. It's no. ufologist. Okay. So, Stan, how many UFO sightings do you think are actually aliens? and not just some drunk guy with a good imagination. Well, give, give me numbers here. Okay, right? if you take the largest study ever done for the Air Force, 21% of the 3,200 cases investigated turned out to be completely unexplainable, separate from the ones for which they didn't have enough data, which they were 10%. So it's a significant uh, percentage. Sightings are common. I check all my audiences, more than 700, and at the end of the lecture, of course, never at the beginning. And I find that 10% of the people believe they've seen a flying saucer but how when I asked guys, how many reported, it was only 10% of the 10%. How many guys on the crew saw a flying... Oh, no, this this camera three saw a flying saucer. That's about 10%. You know? well, do you think it's feasible for the government to keep these things secret, considering the dirt that leaks out of the White House these days? Well, I, yeah, I worked on classified programs for 14 years, nuclear rockets and fusion rockets, nuclear power plants for space. And of course you can keep secrets. So the black budget, not under direct congressional control of the director of central intelligence, a court case it took to find this out was $26 billion. Guys, dollars. Yeah, but, uh, but secrets are easy to keep. The need to know concept is primary. It's not just having a clearance. I've been to 18 archives. We still haven't seen any above top secret stuff, top secret ultra umbra They've got it. They'll admit to me that, oh, we got drawers full of this stuff, but you aren't going to see well, it. Well, have you, have you filched anything? Have you, have you, have you come no. up with any proof? of? I've of... come up with an enormous amount of evidence, not only that the planet's being visited by extraterrestrial spacecraft, 
that is some UFOs are alien spacecraft, but that we're dealing with a cosmic Watergate. Some few people in major government agencies have known since 1947. Cosmic Watergate, 1947, Roswell, right? Roswell, they you got anything on Roswell? I've got loads. Besides I was the first to. That was some classic Stan Friedman at the top of his game. Could you sense? I, I feel like I could sense that he knew going into that that it was going to be a joke, and he went at it in the opposite direction. Yeah, he um, he could drown you in statistics. Now, the interesting thing is, the statistics were never lies, but you can make statistics say sometimes whatever you want them to say. So Stan was pretty good at manipulating certain statistics. Um, to prove the conclusion that he had come to. Other people could look at the same statistics, manipulate them or view them in a different way mm-hmm. and come to a different conclusion. And that's fine. That's that's what the argument, that's what the debate is. But Stan didn't, you know, all the nice things I said about him, he didn't suffer fools gladly. So if somebody uh, tried to sort of come at him, he had a sense of humor, but if you tried to come at him and make fun of him, not, you know, like, Stan could make fun of himself, but if you tried to make fun of him, that's a different story. And and Stan, it was pretty – I never saw anybody put him off his game, ever. He was LeBron – no, LeBron James gets put off his game all the time. He, he's kind of the Michael Jordan of ufology. It's pretty rare to find Michael Jordan get put off his game. So Stan was competitive. And the competition, though, was I need to get the information out. And so – the opposing team, if you will, whether it was Phil Class and the skeptics and the well, the debunkers, really, um, and the the strident debunkers. Stan would debunk just as much as the next guy if he thought it was bunk, because Stan had no time for people who would gum up and make it harder for him to get the information out that he wanted to get out, which he considered serious, and to popularize it and make it accessible and all that stuff. And Neil. You know, we talked about this Stanton toured the world wrote books. He's been on Larry mm-hmm. King unsolved mysteries, probably a hundred times. Uh, he's, he's done anything you could expect to do in this field short of solve the riddle. And I think that eventually age started to catch up to him. And not long ago, he announced his retirement from UFO research and speaking. Before we we talk about it, I'm going to play another clip. This is him uh, being interviewed by Steve Murphy on CTV uh, right after he announced his retirement. If you've ever looked up in the sky and seen something up there you could not explain, there is a very good chance our guest tonight may have heard about it. Stanton Friedman was a respected nuclear physicist for a number of top-notch companies, including General Electric and Westinghouse, when his career took a fascinating turn. In 1970, he gave up the corporate world to dedicate himself to the scientific investigation of unidentified flying objects. He has been a respected voice in the field of UFOs ever since then, giving talks and lectures around the world, publishing uh, scholarly papers and books. In other words, in the world of UFOlogy, experts don't get any bigger than Stanton Friedman, and after a long career, he's decided to retire this year. We are very happy to welcome uh, Stanton Friedman to our studios in Fredericton tonight. Thanks so much for joining us, Stanton. 
Thanks. Glad to be here. You've uh, you've already worked, uh, by my calculations, about 20 years past uh, pension age. Why have you decided to retire now? Well, I gave my first lecture 50 years ago, and frankly, I'm tired. I'm getting old, traveling around. I've lectured in all 50 states, 10 provinces, 19 other countries. Uh, I've written six books. My time has come. <laughs> I, I'd say you've earned a rest for sure. So we heard him give the Calls Notes version of his retirement. He's getting old, getting tired. He's done it all. I looked at the dates and that clip, uh, that interview of him announcing his retirement, I saw him speak publicly, I think six months after that, in an event that you organized in Halifax. Um, uh-huh. what would, like, and you were, when you organized that event, I think it was at Dalhousie University. And first of all, it was amazing to see my whole life I've known who Stanton was and his accomplishments. And I've seen him on so many television shows or whatever. To, to see him in person was fabulous. But Obviously, at the watching him, I noticed his age, and he was moving slow. His wit was still razor sharp, as was his delivery. But like behind the scenes, like did you really notice, or did you have any fear that he was, you know, pushing it too far, or you know, hanging on too long? Like, what did you think of his decision to retire? Was that the right thing for him to do? Uh yeah, I, I would never judge Stan's decision to retire or his decision to maybe not retire 10 years earlier. You know, it, everybody lives their own life and Stan enjoyed being on the road. Frankly, he was probably, you know, in some sense unhealthy and in other senses healthy, you know, because you know, you're constantly moving. Stan was a guy that uh, I, I'm not sure he, how happy he would have been mm-hmm. in total retirement. I honestly don't know, though. I, I You can never judge. All I know is... Um, when he said he was going to retire, I remember telling my parents, yeah, sure, maybe, uh, but I think he'll still do some things. It was a half retirement, but uh, I wanted to, um, I wanted to do the esotericon, which is this thing that I did. And, uh, I wanted to bring a bunch of my chums. So Aaron Gullius, Tim Benal, Greg Bishop, uh, Ryan Sprague, Micah Hanks, a lot of the younger guys in particular, uh, up, but I, you know, hey, who's the keynote speaker? You're all great. Aaron, you're awesome. Greg, you're cool. Yeah, Stan's the keynote speaker. Um, so I wanted one last, I knew it was the end, not the end of his life. That was a surprise to me. But, I, you know, I knew it was the end. It was probably going to be the last time I'd ever see him speak. Uh, and if I didn't do it, if I didn't invite him, I would probably never see him speak again because I had stopped going to conferences and the odds that he would be back in Halifax were probably pretty slim to none. Because I don't think Halifax was on his list of uh, places he had committed to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, yeah, when, when he gave his lecture, I mean, it was basically the greatest greatest hits. Like, here we are. Here's my last gig. We're Led Zeppelin, and here's our greatest hits kind of thing. But, yeah, he was slower, still sharp. Uh, I remember talking to him in his hotel room um, and over lunch and everything. And still people, you know, very friendly, joyful, uh, comfortable, too, I think, with his decision. But... His hearing had largely gone. So if you were there when he did his Q&A, I had to translate the questions to him because I was standing right. He said, Paul, can you stand with me? Because in the old days, he'd just take the questions. But here, 
you know, he couldn't hear people really 30, 20, 30 feet away, sitting away from him. Um, so I would hear the questions and then I would have to turn and sort of speak into his hearing aid so he could hear the questions. And it was like 85% successful. So yeah, age takes its toll on everybody. It took its toll on Stan. Um, but you know, he, in a way, I think when he passed away, it was in an airport, he was coming back from a speaking engagement in the United States. So I'm not going to say he went out the way he want to go out. Who knows how you want to go out? I don't know. And there certainly wasn't a poetry to it. I wish he was still here. So I don't want to say any of those corny things. But, you know, there's a symmetry to it, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, I, I have to say it was a shock when he passed away. Um, not a shock. He was, anytime you're in your 80s, you just never know. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it's very sad. I, I Hearing his voice, I can hear it coming through the uh, screen when you were playing the clips. Uh, it brings back nothing but good memories for me. Even when Stan and I would feud, uh, you know, it was always friendly. And I miss the feuds, if nothing else. I, you know, he, he torched me in one of his books once. He wrote an addendum to his Majestic 12 book. And he, my dad sort of called me up and said, you seen Stan, Stan was by? He dropped off a copy of the book. Have you seen it? No. Uh, well, you should. <laughs> Because <laughs> he's, you know, he's talking about you and Majestic Twelve, and he's like, I don't know why my nephew insists, and whatever. And uh, so I called him up, and we just talked about baseball. It's fun. So yeah, I miss him. I, I miss, I miss having him in the universe or this universe. Uh, who knows where he is now? Like when he passed away, I understand he left behind just a absolute mess of documents and half finished books and. I think people probably didn't even know what half the stuff was, but I believe it was um, they were going to have like a curated display at a museum in Fredericton to showcase what he left behind. But I suppose it was the pandemic likely is what derailed that. Did did that ha actually happen? Well, it, I I don't know about Stan Friedman Appreciation Day. I think they gave him the key to the city once or something like that. I think they named a, a day after him. Like they have like Stan Friedman Day in Fredericton. Yes. Um, yeah, I think so. The, he didn't leave it to a museum. He left it to the University of New Brunswick Archives. Okay. Uh, because um, Stan ultimately was an academic at heart, even though he's a showman and entertainer. His favorite ufologist or UFO researcher, uh, bar none, was uh, Dr. James McDonald. Um, and McDonald's archives, I think, are at the University of Arizona, I think. Somewhere down in the southwest. Pretty sure it's Arizona. And so Stan... Uh, I have no doubt wanted to follow in the footsteps of McDonald and have his papers uh, left to an archives where serious researchers could come and they would be cataloged. And, you know, Stan spent a fair portion of his career in archives looking through papers. So now people, when they finally get it done, will be able to. <laughs> and as Stan said, it might take a graduate student 20 years to do it because he, he really his basement was a disaster. It was like a Tasmanian devil whirling dervish of paperwork. Um Kind of like my desk, but you can't see it. So, yeah, that's great. Who knows what they'll find in there? I mean, I don't know. I was in his basement more than once. I, I don't know what was under the eighth level of, it was like the nine levels of hell. Who knows what's on the ninth level? We're only on the first level. So I have no idea what, like, I remember seeing reports. He had old declassified reports from his old days as a top secret physicist uh, working for the U.S. government on various things about rockets, just lying around with the red mark through, you know, and everything. Oh, you can take this. Um, he would just have stuff lying around. So I suspect, uh, depending on what they shipped to the archives, whether they took all of it or whether they took parts of it, it'll be a treasure trove of, for historians like Aaron Gullius, 
drive on up to Fredericton and go through the Stan Friedman archival uh, records. And, uh, you know, you'll probably see correspondence because he would keep it all from various UFO researchers or various government agencies, plus his own research. Um, you know, all of that stuff will be in there. And uh, I might be the first guy when it's, uh, you know, to go up and, and rifle through when I get the opportunity. Now, I, I might discover things I didn't know. Now, for people who want to learn more about Stan's life than what we went through here, why don't you give me some ideas of like what would be some good resources to go to? So you have your film, Stanton Friedman is Real. That's up on on YouTube. Your company has it hosted there. I, I watched it this morning and it was fantastic. Other than your film about his life, what else do you suggest people could look into? Uh, here, I'll, I'll put my Stan Friedman hat on. You don't need to go any further. My film's all you need to see. Um, and it's free, so there you go. Uh, I, I don't know. Like, Google Stan Friedman. The best way to learn about Stan, now that he's not here, is to look and watch him. So you can certainly see him in my film. There's lectures and his tells his whole life story, plus some of his critics, Carl Flock, uh, Kevin Randall, are in there. Um so that gives a balanced portrait of the man. There's a couple other films that I did with Stan in them. But you know what? You can, if you Google Stan in YouTube, you'll be there. He is with Ted Koppel on Nightline. I'm sure that one's up. Here oh, he is yeah. on Larry King. You know, you can see, and you can probably even stick him in a timeline and say, here he is in 1978. Here he is in 1985. And you can get a view of who he was by watching him speak. The truth is, he wasn't the best writer. He's a he was a competent writer, but you know. His prose was eh, pedestrian. That's that's what I'll say. The man was a speaker. He communicated orally. And so the best way to hear what Stan believed and to get a feel for who he was was not to read his books, although feel free to do that. Um, I'd encourage, encourage you to do that. But to look, search out his videos, uh, videos that have him in it, interviews, uh, podcasts he would do. Uh, radio interviews like Tim Benal would have him on every year kind of thing when Tim was doing his podcast. You, you'll you find Stan. He's out there. And um, that's the best way to sort of see who he was is to listen to him speak and to watch him speak. And because that was such an intrinsic part of his appeal and also of how he did what he did and when he did it. Uh, and how do, how do people find you? you? You're up to a lot of interesting stuff. For whatever reason, if they wanted to find you uh, virtually, I'm not. Don't list your address or something. But uh... Uh, you can go to uh, the easiest place to find me is our company's website, uh, WinterLightProductions.com, and that usually include the Stan Friedman films there. But you can also find it on YouTube from the U.S. distributors that put it up, and uh, I think it's all free. So I'm sure it's free because I never get any money from it. So <laughs> there you go. Um, and I think my email address is there, so feel free to drop me an email. Uh, I'm on Twitter too, at Paul Kimball Film. So there you go. Before I wrap this up, I want to give a huge thank you to Paul Kimball for sharing his memories of Stanton with us. I also want to give a huge thank you to everyone who watched along with the live stream and everyone now who's listening to the podcast. Without your interest and your support, nighttime would be as impossible as it would be pointless. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. If you want to help take some of the weight off the show's back, please consider subscribing to the premium feed. Not only will it help make the show possible, 
it's going to give you more of each topic than you're going to get here on the free feed. For example, shortly after the release of this episode, I'll begin planning for this Thursday night's patron chat, in which I and the patrons will get together on a video chat and ask questions and discuss past episodes. The audio of that chat will then be released on the premium feed. If you're interested in taking part, you can subscribe to the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And now, since I brought up the premium feed, let me thank the newest subscribers. Steven, Jen, and Raphael, thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else out there who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by simply telling your friends about me and sharing the episodes on social media. And if you have any story ideas or if you want to give feedback on the show, you can reach me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. As well, you can send me voice messages through that link, and I'll air them or answer your questions on upcoming episodes of the show. You can also find me on social media. I use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and I'm on YouTube Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays at 9 Eastern. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. Now I'm going to go out on uh, some clips here from your good friend, Aaron Gullius, and your other good friend, Ryan Sprague. I let them both know that I was going to do this episode, and I was like, if you want to give me an idea of why Stant was so important to you, uh say it to a microphone and send it to me <laughs> and both of them agreed so i'll cool. i'll uh that's that's how we're gonna go up with those clips here so we'll start with uh with aaron gullius who has an amazing podcast called the saucer life i've listened cool. to every episode uh i actually i found uh, i was at value village um i always go there and look at the old books and there was this <laughs> book that was probably printed in like early 70s and it just had that really cool old ufo book vibe and it was um it was written by a woman from the united states all about her ufo abduction her name was greta woodrow uh Mm. i i had never heard of her i had never seen the book but it just caught my eye and i picked it up off the shelf and i was like i'm gonna buy this maybe someday i'll read it and i brought it home and i thought i'm never gonna read a 300 page book from the 70s about someone's ufo abduction but then I thought, I know someone who may read it, though. So I I mailed it to Aaron with a, a little note just saying, like, I'm interested in this book, not interested enough to read it, but I would listen to a podcast on it. <laughs> and so sure enough, he read it and made like a 30-minute podcast telling the story. And it sounded like a pretty good book. But anyway, I love his show. And uh, here's what he had to say about Stan. Hi, this is Aaron from The Saucer Life, and I'm not in the studio right now. Rather, I am in the Saucer Life library. And when thinking about the the work and influence of the late Stanton T. Friedman, I was drawn to look at my modest yet thorough collection of UFO books. And you sort of can can see his, uh, his shadow cast over a lot of these books, uh, not just the ones he uh, he wrote. For example, one book away from one of his books is uh, Fate Magazine's collection, The Best of Roswell. You wouldn't have that without Stanton T. Friedman's work on it. So what is Stan Friedman's influence and um, 
legacy in the UFO field. I, I think it's not just uh, sort of enshrining Roswell as the go-to case. It's presenting um, the importance of scientific rigor and knowledge and archival research. And even if you don't agree with his conclusions, and, and I certainly don't in, uh, in every case, um, you, you have to respect the amount of work he put in, not just crafting his arguments and his ideas and marshalling his evidence, but in clearly and um, effectively communicating his ideas, not just to UFO freaks, and I say that as one of them, not just to the UFO freaks, but to the uh, to the public as a whole. And since since his uh, since his passing, I think that's one of the things that has um, that has been sorely lacking in the UFO field is a voice that can convey these things to the general public in a way that is both engaging and credible. We uh, seem to be able to get engaging or credible, but not both. And um, Stan Friedman was was excellent at that. So we miss Stan um, these years after his passing. He was a, a giant in the field, and hopefully at some point somebody will pick up his mantle effectively. So that was Aaron. I think he sums it up really nice. Yeah, you should have had him on. He said in like three minutes what took me 80 minutes to say. <laughs> so we're going to go out with this. The last one is uh, is Ryan Sprague, who uh, he also hosts a popular podcast, but he's kind of like, um, he's, he's definitely walking in the footprints of, of Stan, where he's on all sorts of TV shows and he writes books. He, he and- is a little... He's, a, he's like a young Stan Friedman without the science background, because he's not a scientist, he's a, a writer. But yeah, Ryan um, reminds me a lot of Stan in the, he talks to people and he gets interviews and he'll get them on tape and Stan would do that too. So he, he is, he is walking a little bit in Stan's footsteps for sure. All right, so we're gonna go out on this. So here's, uh, here's Ryan's book. Hey Jordan, it's Ryan Sprague from Somewhere in the Skies. And yeah, man, just throwing my two cents in for Stan the Man, Stanton Friedman. I mean, there's so much to say about this guy and what he has done for me personally and for so many other UFO researchers out there, but this guy's name is attached to all of the landmarks within ufology. And he's coined so many amazing slogans, too, in our field. You know, stuff like, quote, a cosmic water gate. You know, this when dealing with our government's continued efforts to cover up what they know about the UFO issue and whatnot. I always love that, a cosmic water gate. He also coined the term nasty negativists, you know, when dealing with skeptics who would always attack, you know, kind of the character of a person they're debating rather than looking at the actual facts of a case. I always love that one, too. And, of course, his brutally honest thoughts on SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But to him, the acronym actually meant silly effort to investigate. He did not think too highly of that institution. Something else that I found really cool, and I didn't know this until I read it in the New York Times obituary for Stanton Friedman, was that he was actually featured in a Betty and Veronica comic book, which was so cool. Um, He was at a UFO convention that Betty and Veronica went to in Riverdale, and he, he schooled them. He enlightened them on UFOs, which I thought was awesome. 
I mean, he just did so much to educate humanity on UFOs. I mean, he lectured at over 600 colleges, 100 professional groups in 50 U.S. states, 10 Canadian provinces, and like 20 other countries. Just imagine how many minds he opened up to all of this like he did for me. And Stanton truly paved the way for the acceptance of this topic in the scientific community and beyond. One of my most vivid and amazing memories of Stanton was when I saw him give his last ever lecture in Canada, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Jordan, you were at this event with me. And I just remember, you know, watching him give this revival of the first lecture he ever gave on UFOs when he was younger. And it was called UFOs Are Real. So we got to see the encore and quite possibly one of the last times he would ever lecture on UFOs. I remember at that lecture in Halifax, we were going out to dinner and we forced Stan Friedman to ride shotgun in a convertible. And he was so overjoyed and honored by that. And I distinctly remember Micah Hanks, a fellow UFO researcher, snapping an amazing photo of Stanton in this convertible, looking like the coolest dude ever. And he was just so goddamn happy cruising around Halifax. I'll never, ever forget that. My other really poignant moment in my memories of Stan Friedman is when I had him on the Somewhere in the Skies podcast for my 50th episode. I wanted to do something special, and it just happened to coincide with the time I was finally able to talk to Stan Friedman, and I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate 50 episodes of my show. And I had him come on, and we just walked through his entire life and career, and I just sat there in awe at this man's life and what he accomplished. It was incredible. I hope that wherever Stanton is now, that hopefully he's getting those answers that he always sought in life and all of us could only be so lucky. So that's my memories of Stanton. Just an incredible, incredible human being. And we will never, ever forget the work that he's done. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. And keep looking up.